Good morning. This week we're covering our second week of our identity series, and today we're going to talk about our identity as servants. Uh, even this morning, I, w- I was just taken back by God's people and how they serve uh, this body. Um, I was talking to Ryan uh, this morning. They, the band practiced yesterday. Then they were here again this morning at 7 a.m. Uh, you know, the tech team, you name it, God has brought his servants uh, to serve the body of Christ. And I'm so encouraged by it. Uh, even last Sunday, as we had our family meeting, we were wrapping up. Tristan came up to me and said, uh, we got a problem. Uh, water is coming up from the drains in the floor in the hallway downstairs and the toilets are overflowing Uh, and so he graciously got out a mop bucket and we mopped up the the sewage and and uh, Jay Benicki if you don't know Jay the epitome of servanthood I know he's been sick I don't know if he's here this morning but uh, he handles our facility issues and he does it all free. He's retired, and he graciously does that. And uh, he called a plumber and tracked with the plumber. The plumber came and spent the whole day uh, plumbing out uh, the, the sewer lines. And uh, by the way, COVID is still haunting us because uh, he, they found a, a medical-grade mask in the sewer line, uh, among many other things. Um, but the body continues to serve in very humble uh, ways that allow us to gather each Sunday uh, to worship him. And, and so I'm gr- so grateful for that and this opportunity to, to focus our attention on our identity as servants. And from the beginning, God designed us uh, in his image uh, and to get our identity from him. We are made in his image. Uh, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God gave us that responsibility to rule, to have dominion over his creation, to bear his image and to um, reflect his image as we steward his, his world. But Satan wanted to be Lord of the earth. So he came to Adam and Eve with a lie that they uh, could be like God, knowing good and evil, and that somehow they were, they were missing something from their identity uh, that, they, that they could, in their own effort, pick this fruit and gain something more through their own effort. And that same um, pursuit has fallen upon mankind ever since. Uh, That sin nature, that that desire to try to make it on our own and find righteousness in our own efforts. And it reminds me of the this this classic TV show called The Twilight Zone. Anybody familiar with that? Uh, Yeah, the sci-fi show. uh, And there's one particular episode where um, 
the, these aliens come to the planet and they're at this advanced uh, race and they have all this technology and they begin to take care of all the human ills and uh, take care of famine and poverty and war and they present to mankind this book called To Serve Man. The only problem with this book is it's in their native tongue and so they put together this team of translators to figure out what this book says. It's a title To Serve Man. And uh, so they go to work on this and over time people begin to um, get comfortable with these aliens and they start to take excursions back to their planet and uh, one day one of the translators uh, decides hey I'm gonna go on one of these excursions that'll help me translate uh, this book and as he's about to get on the spaceship one of his co-workers comes running and says stop the book's been translated and it's a cookbook so <laughs> they, be, they realized that the motive of these aliens was not so great that they really wanted to serve up man as a meal and uh, their intent was not all that good uh, but it that reminds me of our day and time. You know, really, uh, we are in this pursuit of the American dream. And, uh, you know, we're taught from the Declaration of Independence that we have these inalienable rights, the pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. And, um, you know, we're these evolved, evolving beings and that we need to um, you know, be on top, you know, to survive in life. And, um, you know, we deserve happiness. That's, that's just our right. We deserve all these things as, as, um, as Americans. But it's, it's a lie. It's Satan's deception. These things don't give us freedom. Uh, they don't set us free. They don't give us true and ultimate freedom. But there's good news. Uh, Jesus Christ came to restore our true identity. And this servant King Jesus set us free from sin and death. And he comes like that concerned co-worker to expose the lie and to offer us freedom, to offer us liberty and new hope and eternal life and a new identity. Uh, Romans 6 describes this beautifully. Paul says, Thank God, once you were slaves of sin, but now you wholeheartedly obey this teaching we have given you. Now you are free from your slavery to sin. You have come, become slaves to righteous living, but now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. So before Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, he gives his disciples these final instructions. Um, we refer to it as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus tells the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything 
I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of age. Did you catch the identity statement in there? He says, I am, we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The word baptize literally means to immerse. We are immersed into the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in the Bible, a person's name often represents all of who they are. So we are baptized into the identity of the Trinity of God and uh, saturate the world has a good diagram that they've put together that describes this, how our identity and practices are shaped by our God-given identity. And if you'll, you'll see there, these four questions that we often use in our discipleship. Uh, who is God? What has he done? Who are we and how do we get to live? Who, who is God essentially is theology, uh, the doctrine of who God is. And from that, we come to Christology. Who, what has God done as best seen in Christ? And then who are we? Uh, ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And then missiology, how do we get to live? How do we live in light of who God is, what he's done, who we are in him, and what he has called us to do? And so today we're, our focus is on our identity as uh, found in the son. He's adopted us and he's purchased us uh, from the slave market of sin. And we've become his servants. And as servants, we serve King Jesus and serve others as a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And as we focus on this identity, we're going to answer these questions. What is a servant? How do I become a servant? What is the attitude of a servant? What does a servant do? Why do I serve? And why don't we serve? So first of all, what is a servant? This morning I brought several items to help us uh, Remember what a servant is. The first one is, is a rope uh, because the uh, word for uh, servant is, is doulos in the Greek and it comes from this word that means to tie or to bind. And, and so we as servants of God, of God are bound to him. We are his possession and we serve his biddings. We're we're bond servants. We're tied to him. Webster defines uh, service as to be of use, to furnish or supply with something needed or desired. Service as to be of help, use, benefit, contribution to the welfare of others. So when you think of it as um, adding benefit to, to be of use, uh, you realize that with service, comes this idea that there's a lack of something. When a waitress serves, she's serving at the benefit of those she's serving, and those who are, that she is serving, they're hungry, they want, they want a meal. And, and so as we serve, we realize that there's need in the world. Uh, there's not enough food, there's not enough time, there's not enough money, there's not enough love, attention. Um, there's just not enough. And ultimately, 
um, the world lacks, uh, our, our lack stems from our a broken relationship with God. And God is the source of all we need. And so as we serve, we're serving up Jesus, if you will. We're serving up Jesus through our words and our actions. Um, as I mentioned in the, in the Bible, the word servant is the Greek word doulos. Um, and to be a disciple of Christ, an apprentice, means we are servants. And in a sense, we're all serving something. If we're not serving God, we're serving ourselves. We're serving others. We're serving, uh, and if we're serving ourselves, ultimately we're serving Satan. So ultimately, we live our lives in service to something. But the scriptures tell us that we have been bought with a price. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he says, What know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here's some scriptures that highlight our servant identity. And when we get to the word servant or serve, let's all just say it together so we can focus on the scriptures today. Paul and Timothy, servants, join with me, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So these equip, equippers equip the body of Christ to do works of service. And through our works of service, the body is, uh, attains maturity. It's built up. And so we, God needs each one of us to contribute the gift that he's given to us. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. There he says, you've been given a gift. Uh, often we refer, refer to them as spiritual gifts, that unique uh, empowerment of the Holy Spirit to contribute to the growth and maturity of the body. Those that are in Christ have that gift uh, and they're, we're commanded uh, to use it to serve one another. So how do I become a servant? Uh, in Roman times, the term bond servant uh, could refer to somebody that voluntarily served, but typically it meant uh, it referred to somebody that was in a permanent position of servanthood. They were a possession of their master. They had no rights. They could even be killed with impunity by their owners. When we look back in the Old Testament, the word bond servant uh, among the people of Israel uh, usually referred to somebody that uh, was serving because they had a debt to pay. Uh, so instead of being put in prison, uh, you had the opportunity to pay off your debt by serving the one uh, that you owed the debt to. And once you completed 
uh, paying off your debt through your service, you had the opportunity to become a bond servant, one who uh, became a permanent uh, servant in this family for life. And Exodus 21 describes this beautifully. If the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an owl. Then he will be his servant for life. I brought an old owl, owl uh, this morning. So they would take them to the judge and they would put their ear up against the doorpost or against the door and they would pierce their ear indicating that uh, they now belong in the household of this family. We're, so we're born into this world as slaves, slaves to sin and Satan, but we're bought with a price. We're bought out of the slave market of sin. We've been set free from sin and death, and we have a new master, a master that doesn't treat us like the Roman slave, but a master who treats us like sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges thereof as a child of God. So we, and the scriptures tell us that we become bond servants of Christ by grace through faith. Here's some passages that highlight that. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. For by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. We then live out our faith through our works, as Romans, or as Ephesians 2.10 tells us, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And essentially, we are saved by faith, but then we live out our salvation also by faith. And we live and, and we serve by faith. When you think about it, when you serve, you're giving out something. You're giving a portion of your life. You're giving your time. You're giving your energy. You're giving your resources. You're giving your attention. And by faith, you're believing that you'll have enough for yourself. That, that, that you won't fully expend yourself, that God will provide for you either through his hands directly or through his, God's people, that, but God will provide for you. And that ultimately one day, even though you live this life in total servanthood, uh, that one day God will reward you uh, in heaven. And so we, we live by faith. We, we serve by faith. What is the attitude of a servant? 
Um, Philippians 2 probably describes the attitude uh, better than any passage. It says, beginning at verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So a servant serves in humility. And as used in scripture, humility does not mean weakness or self-hatred. It means a proper appreciation of how we are in relationship to God. Uh, The Helps Word Study says this really well. In scripture, lowliness, humility is an inside-out virtue produced by comparing ourselves to the Lord rather than to others. This brings behavior in alignment with this inner revelation to keep one from being self-exalting, self-determining, self-inflated. For the believer, humility means living in complete dependence on the Lord with no reliance on self. And I love this quote by C.S. Lewis. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. But is that what we see in our American society? Uh, you know, we have what I mentioned, the, the, the declaration of independence. But Peter, in 1 Peter 5, he gives us the declaration of dependence. He describes it this way, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. He says, the person that is humble, he places himself under the mighty hand of God. The hand is the instrument by which a person executes his will, his plans, his desires. And so when we're serving God, when we're humbling ourselves under his mighty hand, we are becoming the hands of God to execute his purposes and his will in this world. Uh, Paul described his service as a drink offering. He said in Philippians 2.17, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness with which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. So a drink offering uh, was something that they offered in the Old Testament along with the animal sacrifices. They would offer uh, wine poured in addition to the, the animal's Uh, along with a a meal or a grain offering. And it's interesting that this drink offering was commanded to be done when they entered into the promised land. It's as if God was saying, eventually when you get to the promised land, you will have victory. And you will be able to plant gardens, and you'll be able to plant vineyards, and you will be able to take the first fruits of the labor of your hand which and offer it unto me as an act of worship, an act of sacrifice. 
and God's deliverance uh, from Egypt and his deliverance and bringing them into the promised land was now to be celebrated and, and, and worshiped. But we have the new covenant. Christ, the God-man, has enter, entered into his Sabbath rest with us. Christ was the final perfect sacrifice that ended all sacrifices. And we enter into the Holy of Holies with him. And we enter into the rest with him. And now we get to celebrate that. We get to express our gratitude and our thanks and our love and our worship through our acts of service to God. Paul in Philippians goes on to um, challenge the Philippians to humble service for others, and he gives Christ as that perfect example. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And I love that phrase, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We can have the mind of Christ. We can live a life of humility and service because we're in Christ and his spirit is in, in us to work out our faith, to, 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 to will and to do of his good pleasure. And then he goes on to describe the mind of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was in the form of God. He was, by very nature, God. He was 100% God, 100% man. John 1.1 tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Who was that Word? Down in verse 14 tells us, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The NIV puts it this way, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And the New Living Translation, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. He laid it all aside, didn't consider it something to take advantage of, but instead used it to um, display his love, to become a man, uh, and to take on the form of a servant, even to the point of death. What did that look like? Verse 7 says, he emptied himself. And again, uh, this word is used four times in the New Testament. It's used figuratively of nullifying something, making it of no account, according to the NIV application commentary. The NIV puts it this way, he made himself nothing. And the NLT, he gave up his divine privileges. He did not hold on to them. And he did it by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That word form is the same word that was used in, in verse 6, the form of God. He took on the very nature of a servant, of a man. 
rather than coming to the earth as a king and de demanding uh, his, his right and demanding that everyone bow down and worship him by demanding justice. He put that aside, laid that aside, didn't cling to it, and he came as a servant to serve us. He further describes that humiliation in verse 8. In being found in him in form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. His equality with God led him to view his status not as a matter of privilege, but a matter of unselfish giving. All the power and authority that was given to him became a channel for giving, became a conduit to give to you and I. I love the, this example that Christ gave his disciples. He's coming to the end of his life on earth and he gathers his disciples together in the upper room in John chapter 13. And <clears throat> I believe it was Peter and John had gone on before them and had prepared the meal. And they were gathering there. And typically, uh, when they were your guest in a home, the servant would wash your feet prior to the meal. And this was pretty important because, you know, they wore sandals. Uh, they walked around most of the time on dirty roads with animals everywhere, animal excrement, you know, garbage. So you can imagine by the end of the day, you're eating your evening meal, what your feet would be like. And uh, so they're gathering in this room and uh, they're all sitting around, uh, around this table, which is low to the ground, again, close to the feet. And they are not in chairs. Their feet are you know, propped up. They're probably sitting cross-legged or sideways. And so everybody's feet are just like in your face. And so it was crucial to, to wash your feet. Uh, and I, I can imagine what the disciples were doing. They're all looking around. Nope, I'm not doing that. Not Peter. He really stepped in it today. Oh, well. We'll just have to endure. And maybe Jesus has something supernatural up his sleeve. After all, he, he supernaturally prepared all this for us. Um, but it seemed like none of the disciples were willing to humble themselves and admit that they weren't above being a servant to one another. And this verse really jumped out to me, uh, verse 3. It says, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper. And he took this towel and he took off his outer garment in humility, probably down to what a servant might be wearing. He knew who he was. He knew where he had come from. He knew that he was deity. He knew what he could take advantage of. Yet he didn't consider it something to grasp. Instead, he grasped the towel as a servant for you and I. 
So when we're tempted to think of our human dignity, you know, our prestige, our rights, we need to open our eyes and look to Jesus, the one who knelt down, took a basin, and methodically washed the filthy, dirty feet of sinners out of his great love. When, when you begin to think about your service and you think about, hey, I'm not getting any recognition for this. I'm not getting any compensation. Um, you know, I'm, this, I'm, I'm living in obscurity. I, you know, what about my freedom? This is lonely. This is hard. It's difficult. It's costly. We need to turn our eyes to Jesus who humbled himself and became a bondservant even to the point of death. So he went from being God in glory to, the wash, to washing the stinky, dirty feet of selfish, sinful men. Think about his majesty, the glorious God of the universe coming and humbling himself. The amazing thing is, is not so much that story, but that it didn't end there. There in John chapter 13, it tells us that Jesus loved them till the end, to the end, to, the, to perfection, to completeness. And Jesus went, was uh, betrayed by one of his own, by Judas. And he was led to this um, farce of a trial and he was convicted and he was mocked and he was lied about and he was spit upon and beaten and a crown of thorns thrust in his head and he was nailed to a cross and he was stripped naked his dignity laid bef in, before humanity in all that, he looks down. He looks down and sees his mother Mary, and he instructs John to take care of his mother. And in the midst of all that pain and suffering and sacrifice, he thinks of the thief next to him, that would-be disciple, and, and gives him his salvation. That's our Savior. That's the humility of our Savior. That's the extent to which he serviced, served, served us and loved us to the end. He continued to humble himself. Why do we serve? Why do we do all this? I have a whole list of, of, of Scripture but I'm just going to read out um, several of these for time's sake, and then I'm going to focus in on one of them. But we serve because service sanctifies us. Service points people to God and to his glory. Service leads to God's blessing. I'll just mention 1 Peter 5.10. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, comfort, 
confirm, strengthen, and establish you. There's blessing in serving. Service is an act of love and worship to God. All these are compelling reasons to serve. But there's one principle that's found in James chapter 4, starting at verse 6. It says, But he gave more grace, more of his goodness. He gives more of his goodness, his grace, his mercy. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. God will exalt you. He will draw near to you. Why do we serve? According to James, humility gets God's attention. It draws God's gaze. It attracts more of his grace and draws us into his presence. It's a pretty good reason to serve, isn't it? We're drawn into his presence. We're drawn into his love. We experience more of his blessing. The life of Moses really beautiful illustra illustrates this principle. Numbers 12.3 says this about Moses. Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. And because of this humble spirit, God exalted him and allowed him to experience God and his presence as no one has ever experienced it and in a way in which no one ever will until we come into his presence. And later in, in Numbers 12, God speaks of Moses saying, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Pretty big stuff. Uh, I'd go for that any day, right? <laughs> for God to speak to me in a dream. But then he goes on to say, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly, not in dark sayings. And he beholds the form of the Lord. If you go and look at Exodus 33 and 34, he elaborates on these encounters, and I won't go into reading all that, uh, but it says that thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Moses set this tent out from the camp of the people of Israel, and they called it the tent of meeting. And whenever somebody was pursuing the Lord, they would go out to this tent of meeting. And when Moses would go out there, everybody would come out of their tent and stand and watch because this pillar of cloud would descend on the tent of meeting whenever Moses went into the tent. And it was in this tent of meeting the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And then Moses goes on to have this dialogue with God 
And he's, he's wanting even more. He's like, this is great. Give me more of your glory, God. And uh, then God says, okay. And he takes him to this mountainside and God shows him all his glory. And God says, well, I can't show you all my glory face to face, but I'll at least show you my backside. And I wish we had time to go into all the details of that. But in that, God reveals his glory to Moses. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, that identity again. I will proclaim before you my name, that name by which we are called. We're baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will proclaim my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Wow. Good reason to serve, isn't it? Good reason to humble ourselves before the Lord. Um, the last part of Ephesians, and I'll close with this. <clears throat> Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him because of all this humility, of all this servanthood, of, of this going to the cross and loving his own till the end. He says... God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Again, that word name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It didn't end at the cross. Jesus rose again after three days and he ascended to the Father and he sits at the right hand of the Father. And guess what? We're in Christ. And he says that we will sit on his throne with him. And one of the last things he says in the New Testament is that we will rule and reign with him forever and ever. Wow! Praise God! Doesn't that glorify service? Doesn't that glorify humility? That's our calling. That's our identity. We are servants, bondservants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's time to, take time now to worship him, through communion, to participate with him, to express our gratitude. At the center of the aisle in the racks, there's trays of communion elements. At the Lord, uh, Last Supper, Jesus broke bread and gave it to his disciples and, and he gave them 
wine to drink. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this till I come again. And so we gather together this morning to do this in remembrance of him, in remembrance of his great love and that he's coming again. He's entered into his rest and we get to enter into his rest with him. And he's coming again to take us home to be with him, to be at his side. So let's take the bread and drink the the juice in remembrance of him. band's going to come and we're going to stand lift our hands open our mouths in service really the, the, the word service and worship in the New Testament are almost like synonymous when we serve we worship when we worship we serve so this morning let's do some service the cool thing about service is you don't have to sign up to, to serve in the nursery. You know, you don't have to sign up to be a greeter. Um, you can serve anytime, all the time. All you have to do is open your mouth, extend your hand, walk down the sidewalk, use some muscles in your face and smile at somebody, wave at somebody, give a word of encouragement, pat somebody on the back, give somebody a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. Anything that will draw people to the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, do it in his name.